Um, the reading today is taken from the book of James, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 17. If you want to follow it in the Bible, um, it's page 1213 at the very bottom. Say, it doesn't say the page number on the top. <laughs> it says it's on the page before. Okay. The heading is for favoritism forbidden. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. It, is it not the rich man, the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because freedom without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob's going to come and speak, and I'm going to pray for him. Lord, I just thank you for the gift that you've given to Jacob. I thank you that your presence is with him and that he has studied faithfully your word to bring it to us this morning. I pray that you will anoint him afresh with your Holy Spirit and that you will anoint our hearts to hear through him what you have to say so that we might be attentive and obedient to your word. I just pray you will so bless him and bless us and challenge us as he speaks to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you. You probably don't need me to tell you that our world has little time for hypocrisy. It seems like in the eyes of our media at the moment, hypocrisy is perhaps the unpardonable sin. Our media seems to revel in stories of hypocrisy, whether they be about politicians or pop stars or even church leaders. 
you've got a little quote on your notice sheet that's from a guy called Brennan Manning, and he says the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I'm sure we can all think of instances tragically where that is true. I'm sure we can all think of instances where Christian hypocrisy has done immeasurable damage. I can certainly think of conversations I've had with non-Christians where it seems like they avoid even thinking about the possibility that Christianity might be true by pointing to the hypocrisy of Christians. I came across that quote not long after I first became a Christian, and at the time I was reading various Christian writers who were basically saying a very similar thing, who were saying, you know, the church isn't very good at living up to the words of Jesus. And they're basically saying Christians need to get their act together and pull their socks up. And at the time, that message really resonated with me. But actually, I think there's a bit of a problem with that message, and I think that is that when we hear it, we easily slip into thinking that it's all about our works, that we really earn our salvation by doing good things. I think we so easily slip into thinking that Christianity works like any other religion, that we just need to try a bit harder and God will reward us. And so we end up subverting the, the wonderful news of the gospel, which is that we are freely accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross. And we simply have to put our trust in him. The other dangerous thing with thinking that it's all about our works is that when we're doing well, we slip into pride. When we're doing well, we think, you know, aren't I great? I'm keeping God's commands. I'm living up to my calling. And so we fail to trust in Jesus. We trust in ourselves instead. And when we're not doing so well, we despair because there's nowhere else to look apart from in me, and when I'm not doing well, what, what do I do? What do we do about this then? Well, enter the book of James into this fray, and I think James cuts through some of these issues quite neatly. I don't know how well you know the book of James, but um, James is writing to a Christian community not too different to us, really. He's assuming a bunch of Christians who have done the Alpha Course, they know the good news of the gospel. They understand that they are accepted by God, not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. They've studied the book of Romans. They have done Gospel 101. And yet, like any group of Christians, there are areas of their lives where that glorious good news has not fully permeated. It's not fully begun to affect the way they live in lots of ways. And so the book of James is really an encouragement to Christians like that to allow the gospel to affect every area of their lives. And James really points out some specific areas where um, the implications of the gospel need to be worked out. But James really cuts through this issue of what is the relationship between what we believe and what we do as well, this issue of faith and deeds. In verse 14 and onwards, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I don't know if you've read that passage before. Certainly when I first read it, I was puzzled by it. Because it can feel like James is basically saying it is about what we do. Some people have wanted to say that James is at odds with the rest of the New Testament here. That unlike the rest of the New Testament, which says we are saved by what Jesus has done, James is saying it's all about what we do. I'm not sure that's what's going on here. If we believe that God is the author of all scripture and he doesn't contradict himself, then there must be a way of understanding this that doesn't pit it against Paul and the rest of the New Testament. What's going on then? Well, I think it's very clear from the rest of the New Testament that we are saved by what Jesus has done. But what James is saying, as I said to begin with, is he's speaking to Christians who know that, but he's exhorting them to let it affect every area of their lives. So what he's saying is that those who've been born again, those who've put their trust in Jesus, don't remain as they were when they were saved. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them and over the course of their whole lives transforms them to be more like Jesus. And so while it's not true that Christians never sin, you don't need me to tell you that, over their whole lives, if you look at the life of somebody who's truly put their trust in Jesus, you should see a progression more and more towards Christ-likeness. Those who truly trust in Jesus grow to hate sin and to love the things that God loves. They grow and seek to bring the whole of their lives under the Lordship of Christ. And so that's how James can say faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The genuineness of our faith is demonstrated by the lives we lead. Jesus uses that image of being in the vine. And James is saying a very similar thing here. Those who are in the vine bear fruit that is consistent with the vine that they have been planted into. And so we who have put our faith in Jesus if we've truly put our faith in Jesus, should bear fruit consistent with that. Good works demonstrate that our faith is genuine. And so this example that James gives of a brother or sister in need is particularly helpful because although the Bible is quite clear that we should care for those in need irrespective of who they are, One of the things that is clear is that genuine faith particularly produces a love for God's people. It produces a love for fellow Christians. And so it would be particularly scandalous in the example that James gives for a Christian to ignore a fellow Christian in such dire need. And so James is saying that faith that doesn't produce a demonstrative change over a period of time Faith which doesn't produce a merciful attitude towards other people. Faith which doesn't produce uh, an increased love for the church, for Jesus' people, is in a dangerous place. James even says it's dead. So the first rather sobering challenge from this passage for us is, do we have that sort of faith? 
we need to ask ourselves, is our faith producing fruit? Susie reminded us last week that we need the armour of God because the Christian life is a fight. If we're not producing fruit, then where are we in that fight? We're probably retreating. There's no place in that fight for standing still. We're either going forward or we're running away. Now we come back to the first part of our reading and you might have wondered why I decided to treat it in reverse. Um, But I think the first bit of our reading really makes a lot more sense in light of now what we know about what James says about faith and works. The first part of our reading then is really about one of those specific areas where James is saying, what does the fruit of faith look like in the life of the church? What does the fruit of faith look like in the way we treat one another in the Christian community? And so in relation to that, James gives this example. He tells this little anecdote about church. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James says, imagine you're on welcome team and church is quite full. There's only a few seats left. And two people walk through the door. And one of them, to your amazement, is Bill Gates. He's wearing an Armani suit and he's turned up in a limo. And he walks into church and behind him walks in a homeless man who you often see sat in Shrewsbury. And as a dutiful welcomer, you go to show both these men through to church. They've never been here before. But to your dismay, when you come into the hall here, you realize that there's now only one seat left. What are you going to do? So, of course, you say, Mr. Gates, would you like to sit here? And you say to the homeless man, I'm really sorry, you can see we're really full, would you mind sitting on the floor? James gives a damning assessment of what has just happened. He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This story James tells might seem a little far-fetched to us. We might think that would never happen. We might think, well, you know, if it happened to me, I'd go get some more chairs out the back. But we can't really evade the punchline like that because James's point isn't the specific example. It's this very issue of showing favoritism. And it's very relevant to us too. One of my friends who's training for ordination with me in Durham tells a a very relevant story about this. uh, Toby doesn't dress like a typical ordinand. Um, He has long hair and almost exclusively wears black and quite often wears heavy metal t-shirts with semi-offensive names on them. And um, dressed like this, Toby went to the Anglican church where he was going to be on placement in Durham at the start of last year. And on his first Sunday there, nobody spoke to him for the whole service, apart from a homeless man who was sat at the back. And after the service, Toby went and introduced himself to the vicar and to the church wardens. And it turns out they knew an ordinan was coming to the church. They were expecting Toby... But when they saw him walk through the door, they they didn't think it was him. 
And so, of course, nobody bothered to welcome him. It's that very issue of judging people by what they look like, and we do it all the time. We expect it out in the world. I'm sure we can all think of numerous examples. The, the school playground with the cool kids and the not-so-cool kids is a classic example that just seems to continue into everyday life, into the adult world as well. And yet James's point is this shouldn't be how it happens in church. In the new community of Jesus, this isn't how things should be. As Paul says to the churches in Galatia, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so that means in the new community of Jesus, there's neither rich nor poor. There's neither male nor female. There's neither British citizen nor refugee. There's neither disabled nor able-bodied. These are all one in the new community of Jesus. The principle James sets out is quite clear. He says in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And yet it's perhaps, perhaps worth us asking the question, Why? It might seem obvious to us, we live in a society that's very good on equality. You could probably go into any school and hear an assembly at some point on treating others equally. But James doesn't root it in some general idea about equality. He roots it instead in the fact that we are believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What difference does that make? Well, all the difference in the world. Because you see, once we get preoccupied with him, once we see the Lord Jesus and get preoccupied with him and his glory, we see that before him there are just human beings and human beings. Before him there's no distinction. Before him, Bill Gates doesn't look that impressive. Before God, we see that there are not stages, there are not some human beings who are better than others. And James goes on to point out that before him, we all stand in need of his mercy. We all stand equally in need of mercy. He says in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The point being, on Judgment Day, we're all going to stand before him equally in need of mercy, irrespective of whether we were rich or poor. James makes the point in verses 8 and onwards that we're all going to be judged according to God's commands. And if we've broken one of them, we've broken all of them. I thought it was very relevant that um, Laura opened by reflecting on repentance. Because actually, we all stand before him in need of mercy. And we have been shown that mercy. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And so since we've been shown that spectacular mercy, that should permeate the way we relate to one another. It should change the way we treat one another. So the second challenge and final challenge then, I think, from this passage is for us to examine our hearts. It's for us to repent of the times when we've been guilty of that favoritism. And it might just be in a small way, it might be just in the people we choose 
not to speak to after church, the people we usually walk past and ignore. But we also need to pray that we might see things more the Lord's way, that we might get more preoccupied with the glory of Jesus Christ and therefore see human beings in light of him and see that there is no distinction.